0: Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that we can come together and once again study to show ourselves approved unto God, that we can be workmen that need not be ashamed, for we have rightly divided your words of truth. We ask for the divine presence of your Holy Spirit, that he may come and minister to our hearts and first convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we pray that you'll please forgive us of our sins and that you will cleanse us as a result of the blood of Jesus Christ being shed on our behalf. Father, we ask that you'll give us another picture now as we seek to understand not just revival, but also reformation. We know there's much that heaven has to say of this topic, so we're asking that you'd give the wisdom and the grace to articulate it rightly. Lord, I pray that you'll take my life, that you'll let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. May you speak to my mind and my heart that I may speak to your people. And I thank you, dear God, that you have heard this prayer, for we do ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles to the book of John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And as you turn to John chapter 5, we're going to be looking at uh, God's teachings as it relates to this idea of revival and reformation. Where did it come from? And you're going to see that it was Jesus that instituted the idea of revival and reformation, quite honestly. You will see this laid out in the book of John, the fifth chapter, and then we're going to look at John, the eighth chapter. In John, the fifth chapter, let's notice what the Bible says as we begin at verse one. Let me know if you're there by saying amen. Amen. The Bible says in John chapter 5, starting at verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind halt, withered, waiting for the move of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had." And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And when Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. And Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And verse 9 says, And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. We find a man who has been sick for 38 years. He has obviously had a disease that no doctor could cure. There was no one who can really help him. And here it is that in his helpless situation, he is always waiting to get into this pool because he believed that if he gets in there when it was troubled, that supposedly a healing experience would take place. Well, now we find that Jesus meets him and he asks him a very simple question. Do you want to get well? It's almost a rhetorical question, isn't it? He says, do you want to get well? Of course he wants to get well. That's why he's always trying to get in the pool. Well, here it is. Jesus now, as he initiates the conversation, the man runs through all of his obstacles and Jesus speaks over his obstacles and says unto him, get up, take up your mat and walk. Now, this brother is now walking now. He rolls up his mat. He's walking, by the way. And Jesus runs back into him at another time. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 14. The Bible says in verse 14, same chapter, Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. What does he say next? Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The Bible shows that this man clearly was in his condition because of what? Because of sin. And Jesus then tells him that not only was he going to quicken his life, you know, inside of his body was all things dead. The cells were dead. The nerve endings were dead. This brother has death running inside of his body. He can't move anymore. And here it is that Jesus speaks life to him and he tells him to get up. And as soon as he acted on the word of God, all of a sudden life starts running through his nerves again. Life starts to all of a sudden rekindle those cells and his white blood cells and his red blood cells and ligaments and tissues and organs. Everything starts to come together. And now this brother is healed. But Jesus did not leave him with just a revived body. Jesus also left him with a reformation instruction. Jesus goes to him and he says, it is good that you're well, but go and sin no more. Lest a worse thing come upon you. It is in the mind of Jesus when he gives instruction that his goal, his objective is not just simply to revive, but also to reform. Notice what the Bible says in John the 8th chapter. John chapter 8. You know this story very well. This is the story of that woman that was caught in adultery. And you'll remember that as these men were trying to trap Jesus and, of course, incriminate him, it gets to the point that as Jesus now sees these people coming before him and they want to go ahead and trap him by the usage of this woman who was caught in the midst of sin, that the Bible says in John 8 and verse 7, look at what Jesus says. It says, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto him, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And of course, he began to write on the ground, and you know the story. These men became very convicted because Jesus was exposing their sins while they were trying to condemn a sinner. And here it is that one by one, they all leave, and it gets to the point that now Jesus and this woman are there together by themselves. In verse 10, you'll notice what Jesus says to her. It says, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Verse 11, she said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Now, you got to understand what happened right there. This woman is waiting under the authoritative word of God to receive the condemnation that she deserved. She was committing adultery. She was practicing sin. She was caught in her sin. The wages of sin is death. And the law stated that she needed to be stoned. By right, that sister was supposed to die. And here it is that she's waiting to feel the pressure of the rocks begin to fall on her. But instead of feeling the pressure of the rocks falling on her, she hears the sweet tone of the rock talk to her. And when she hears the sweet tone of the rock talking to her, the rock says, has anybody condemned you? She says, no. He said, neither do I condemn you. Right there, revival. Once he said, you are not condemned, she literally passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. Right there. But you'll notice that Jesus didn't tell her to go home yet, did he? Right after he introduces his revival statement and says, neither do I condemn thee, the next thing that he says is sin no more. Reformation. Jesus in his work is very consistent that he believes not just in revival, but he also believes in reformation. So the concept and the idea of revival and reformation, though it is wonderfully and articulately and beautifully stated through God's servant, our prophet, brothers and sisters, I'm letting you know that this idea came from the mind of Jesus. Jesus is the one that is responsible for bringing about revival and reformation. He is the one that put it even in Ellen White's mind. To help us understand our great need. And therefore, this morning we studied about revival and what really constitutes a true revival, and we looked at some very key points, but now we are going to look at what is reformation. So I'm gonna go back to this quote that we looked at earlier. Remember, we were reading from Christian service, page 42, and it said, Reformation signifies a what? It's a reorganization, a change in ideas and theories, habits, and practices. Reformation will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it is connected with the revival of the Spirit. Revival and reformation are to do their appointed work, and in doing this work, they must blend. And so you'll find that once an individual is revived, once an individual is quickened with spiritual life, the next step that God instructs is that they are to be reformed. There must be a change in ideas, habits, practices, and the list goes on. So therefore, this morning, when you accepted the call to come into a true, rich, genuine experience of revival, God says that's the start, not the finish. The finish is that there must be a reformation. Now, I am so thankful that I see so many husbands and wives. I'm very thankful that I see families here, and I'm also thankful for the individuals because all of us have homes. And what's going to happen is when you go home What you want to do is make it a priority to say, what is it that needs to be reorganized about my home life? What is it about my personal life that needs to be reorganized? What are the habits and the practices and the things that I do right now that need to change? This is what needs to be going on in your mind as you and I are preparing our hearts to go back home and live out God's truth. Are you following? So, now understanding this, let's go to our next slide. Is there a book? that we can study, that can help us understand our need for reformation? What book do you think that is? Okay, I heard Daniel. What other book? Revelation. Revelation. Sounds like a class that's learning. (laughs) All right. Now, you will notice, watch this. In Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, page 118, notice what it says. It says, The perils of the last days are upon us, and in our work we are to warn the people of the danger they are in. Let not the solemn scenes which prophecy has revealed be left untouched. If our people were half awake, if they realized the nearness of the events portrayed in the revelation, a reformation would be wrought in our churches, and many more would believe the message." And so we find that it's not only that in the book of Revelation that we see a revelation of Jesus Christ that brings about a revival, but then we also read that there is a need to reform our lives so we can be prepared to meet with the one who has revealed himself to us. Are you following? When you study the book of Revelation, brothers and sisters, and when it begins to tell you about all these several events that are taking place, and Revelation 13, as you know, is a very high-key chapter in the book of Revelation. It warns us about that final crisis, as Ellen White puts it. And brothers and sisters, when we're dealing with this mark of the beast issue, we must understand that this is a final test for God's people. We are told in Great Controversy, page 605, that this is a final test that is going to be coming to God's people. And as a result of that, that means that all the tests of life right now are what we would sooner call pop quizzes. All these challenges, everything that always tries us and pulls at us to see how we're going to respond to it and will we respond to it in the manner of Christ. These are pop quizzes, if you will, but this great crisis of the Sunday law, this great crisis of the mark of the beast, brothers and sisters, this is the final test. And Revelation 13 spells it out to you and I, and we have already been told in inspiration that it's not just, last night I said the the majority of the religious world, I was being kind. I showed you last night that it's the majority of the religious world that will be lost. And we showed that from the Bible, didn't we? We saw it right there in Matthew, the seventh chapter, verses 21 to 23, and we saw that Jesus is going to say to a whole bunch of religious workers, he's going to say to them, I never knew you. But then we saw in verses 13 and 14 that that majority of religious workers is none other, it was in fact a majority because it said many will go to destruction, few will have eternal life. And anytime you compare many with few, many is the majority. But brothers and sisters, it's even more clear according to inspiration. In volume five of the Testimonies to the Church, page 136, we are told that at the time When God's law is most despised, God's prophet says at that time when the majority forsake us. We are told that the majority of those, I want you to think about that, million million, seven-day Adventists worldwide, the majority are going to turn their backs on Jesus. That's serious business. That makes me say, Lord, have mercy. Help me to truly be counted amongst the minority and not the majority. Every single one of you in this room this day have an opportunity to be part of the minority and not that majority. The only way it's going to happen is you, you and I need to enter into a genuine experience of revival and reformation. In the book of Revelation, we learn that when all of this crisis shall come, it tells us that there's going to be a group. It tells us that there's going to be a group that's going to make it through the crisis. Did you know there's a group that's going to make it? The Bible says they are they which keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, that's yours and my goal. But the question is this, what are the commandments of God? Well, that's a question for you to answer. We know that the group that's actually going to make it, they are known as those who keep the commandments of God And have the faith of Jesus Christ but my question to you is what are God's commandments what would you say if somebody said well what are God's commandments you're telling me I need to keep God's commandments what are God's commandments someone said the word the word okay the word sounds good anything else say again brother Exodus 20 so my friend is going to the Ten Commandments how many of us say the Ten Commandments There's commandments all through the Bible, that's for sure, about 613. Brothers and sisters, go to Psalm 119. Don't ever forget this, because there's something God wants to show us more than simply a group of people that's going to just try to follow a bunch of external rules. Let me show you what the Bible's really trying to bring across to you and I. The Bible says in Psalm the 119th division you see when revelation shows us the crisis when it shows us that the majority of the people are going to be lost when it shows us that this great crisis is all the world is going to wonder after the beast when we begin to see that our great desire is lord how can i overcome how can i be counted amongst the faithful well jesus says in revelation 14 12 he says those who keep the commandments of god and have the faith of jesus those are the ones that's going to make it well then i say all right great but then we try to keep god's commandments and we fail all day long don't we so that means that we need a deeper understanding. Would you not agree? So therefore, we're in Psalm 119. Now, the Bible says in Psalm 119, you, you'll notice I asked you a question and there is a direct Bible answer. Here's what it is. The Bible says in Psalm the 119th division, notice what it says in verse 172. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 172, it spells it out clear enough that no one can miss it as long as they can read. The Bible says in Psalm 119, the question was, what are God's commandments? The Bible says in Psalm 119, my tongue shall speak of thy word for all thy commandments are righteousness. What are God's commandments? Righteousness. Now, you and I have been trying to keep the commandments in and of ourselves. We see consistent failure, and could it be it's because we're trying to keep righteousness in and of our own strength. You can't do that. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, you know those texts, it makes it clear all our righteousness are as filthy rags. So when I begin to look at God's commandments and I see, Lord, I understand you want me to keep righteousness, but the problem is I can't, God says, but there's one who did. You know what Jesus said, don't you? Go to John 15. Look at what Jesus said. It's sweet when Jesus said it. It was beautiful when Jesus said it. And it's encouraging to know that Jesus said it. In John the 15th chapter, notice what the Bible says. Revelation was supposed to bring this out to you and I. In John the 15th chapter... Right here in verse 10. Look at what Jesus said. Jesus said something that was monumental. Right there in John 15:10. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in John 15, 10, it says, If ye keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Now watch what he says right here. Even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus says, I did it. I kept my father's commandments. You know, there's nobody else who can say that. Everybody else can look back in their history and they can always remember a time they broke it before they kept it. But Jesus can look back throughout his whole entire life. And he's the only human being who ever walked on this earth who can say, I kept it. Never broke it. And because Christ kept it and never broke it, then by faith, I let him live out his life within me. So that now it is not a power of my own that tries to obey God's commandments, but now it's the power of Christ within me living out his life through me. Christ enables me to keep all of God's commandments, brothers and sisters. And this was the idea that Revelation 14, 12 wanted to bring about. And this is why in evangelism, page 190, when Ellen White was asked the question, is the third angel's message the message of righteousness by faith? She says the third angel's message is justification by faith in verity. Amen. The end result justification is that it is revealed through the fruit of one's actions. If a man is truly justified, it will be demonstrated. The works does not justify the man. The works testify that the man has been justified. And that's why the third angel's message is a message of justification by faith. In verity, the glory of man laid in the dust trusting holistically and completely in the power of Jesus to keep every single one of his 10 commandments. No wonder it says keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus Christ. The message of righteousness by faith is right there in the third angel's message and God is trying to show us that revelation was supposed to springboard that thing out to yours and my mind. And so we find that here it is, the Bible makes it very clear that it is in no doubt that the book of Revelation carefully studied, carefully understood, shows us our need for reformation so that we can be a people prepared to meet our God. No wonder the book of Revelation is the book that inspiration tells us we need to be studying. Now let's go on. Who does reformation Begin with. That's a good question, don't you agree? God is a God of order, is He not? Yes. God is a God of order. Yes, that's right. Amen. That's right. And because God is a God of order, then we know that reformation must take place. But the question is, well, who does it begin with? Who would you say it begins with, brethren? Yes. What, what, I, I can't hear you. Sounds like a mixed multitude. Say it again. With us Christians? Is that what I heard? With us Christians. What did you say, Brother Reed? It begins well it begins in the house of God, but it has to begin with somebody, right? Okay, so how many of us say me? It begins with me. Yes? Oh boy, look at your hands. Look like a football stadium. All the hands just went up. All of us say me, right? Well, I respectfully disagree. Is that all right? Is that all right? Can I disagree? Now, you know that I obviously have something in my pocket of why I disagree. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. When the people chose Jesus, why did the people choose Barabbas over Jesus? Here was an opportunity for them to go ahead and choose either Jesus or Barabbas. Why did the people choose Barabbas? What do you think? Huh? You sound like, come on, saints. Why why did they choose that? Why why do people deny Jesus? Go to John chapter 12. Let me show you something. John chapter 12. We say influence of demons, huh? All right. John chapter 12. Let me show you what the Bible says. You want Bible, don't you? You want the Bible? Of course you do. Notice what the Bible says in John, the 12th chapter, in verse 42. The Bible says... Nevertheless, among the who? The Bible says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many what? Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a good thing, isn't it? The chief rulers believed on Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? But why didn't they confess him? Finish the verse. It says many of the chief rulers believed on him, but it says, but because of the? They did not confess him, lest they should be what? put out of the synagogues. Why did the people reject Jesus? It was because of the leaders. Why did they ask for Barabbas? The Bible literally says because the leaders were the ones persuading them. In other words, God has always understood that if he wants a message to come to the church, it must first come to the angel of the church, the messenger, the chief messenger, the leader. Because once a message comes to the leader, then it can have an effect upon the people. Go to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 12. Notice, this is true for bad and it's true for good. I'll give you both. 2 Chronicles chapter 12. Watch this. In 2nd Chronicles chapter 12 right here we will notice something that happened here that's 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 not very good at all. We're in 2nd Chronicles chapter 12 and I want you to see something the Bible says. Second Chronicles chapter 12, notice what it says right here in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass, when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, what did he do? He forsook the law of the Lord, and how much of Israel with him? All Israel. So what did the people naturally do? The, na- the people naturally followed who? The leader. Do you see that? How about when Josiah was king? When Josiah was king, how old was he? He was eight years old. And then when he was 12 years old, Josiah went and he began to do a tremendous reform amongst the people. Did the people follow in line with Josiah? Yes, they did. So do you see the effect that the leaders have upon the people? So again, if reformation were to begin in the house of God, if it was to begin with God's church, who do you think God is really focused on on reaching first? Now you're ready for the quote. The ministers must be converted before they can strengthen their brethren. They should not preach themselves, but Christ and his righteousness. A reformation is needed among the people, but read it with me. But it should first begin its purifying work with the ministers. Is that clear? I like clear. I like clear. Volume 1 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 469. God makes it clear, brothers and sisters, that the Reformation work must begin with our ministers. One of the great reasons that our churches... You know, there's something that takes place in Adventism that quite honestly disgusts me. I will do meetings, and I will preach the word by the grace of God. And typically you sit down with people and people will tell you all sorts of bad things happening in their church. But then you go to them and you say, oh, that's terrible. When's the last time you talked with your minister about that issue? And it gets as silent as it is right now. We will know how to meet in groups. We will know how to meet in cliques. We will know how to meet with everybody else except the person God told us to meet with. When you read Matthew, the 18th chapter carefully, the Bible is explicitly clear that when we see a brother fall or when we see them in a fault or when they are in error or when they have done something that has offended us, the Bible says, go to that person. But we have taken ministers and we have put them on such a level that sometimes we feel like they are beyond correction. And we don't go to them. You have no idea how many times. I remember one time there was a minister. We were teaching the truth as it relates to uh, uh, the nature of Jesus Christ. And we were teaching the truth from the word of God that Jesus had the nature of Adam after the fall. And that's the truth. And we were teaching that, and what the minister would do is we would teach that. We were just teaching it in a Bible class, and we were teaching it in a Bible class, and the next thing you know, there was a, a, a the minister would come up on the pulpit, and on the pulpit, he would say, there are these people teaching Jesus had the nature of Adam after the, after the fall. Well, let me show you, and he would give all these quotes, and he would give quotes from the spirit of prophecy, especially from the Bible commentaries. That's where all the folks always go, Bible commentaries, volume, Bible commentary five, Bible commentary seven, and I'm not afraid of those quotes because all you got to do is read it right. And if you read it right, I can show you from that quote that Christ had the nature of Adam after the fall. Now, he would go ahead and he would quote those things. He would quote it over and over and over again. And he would try to warn the people from the pulpit. He wouldn't sit down with us. He wouldn't sit down to talk with us. He would just try to fight us from the pulpit. You know how many people do that today? They fight all their battles from the pulpit, the place where the gospel was supposed to be preached. And instead they fight each other from the pulpit. Well, here it is that we got to a point that we said, we need to talk to this gentleman. We all agreed and covenanted together, prayed together and said, let's go talk to him. And and I wasn't privileged to be in that meeting, but a couple of the other brothers in our class did. And they sat down with the minister and they began to talk with him. And they said, why are you fighting truth? They just came to him face to face, one on one. They said, pastor, why do you keep fighting truth? Well, I'm not fighting truth. And, 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 and he began to make up all his reasons. Well, Bible commented. They took all those quotes and showed them verse, quotes before, quotes after, comparative quotes, verses from the Bible, so on and so forth. At the end of that study, they looked him in the eye and they said, Pastor, do you see that you cannot use these quotes anymore because they are not endorsing what you've been teaching? The pastor said, yes, I see it. They said, can we have an agreement that you will not do this anymore? Brothers and sisters, that pastor agreed it gets sweeter than that the pastor came back to a Bible study that I was doing I was doing a Bible study at that church again and we started teaching and I was teaching on a whole different topic totally independent on the subject of the nature of Christ and I saw the pastor raise his hand when he raised his hand to make a point I got nervous I said oh Lord please don't let this man start you know I mean I'm I'm thinking this in my mind like Lord I pray this is not going to turn into you know Elijah and the prophets of Baal you know but he raised his hand he said I have a point I said yes pastor go right ahead And he said you know inspiration makes it so clear he said it's right before the whole class he said inspiration makes it so clear that we can have victory over sin because jesus came with the nature of adam after the fall and he said and because christ came in our circumstances situation and he still made it by faith we can have the same thing i said pastor high five to you i said that's what i'm talking about in other words Don't judge people. Sometimes we will not go to ministers and talk to them and redirect them or sometimes correct them because we feel like, oh, they're not going to listen to me. Oh, they're not this, that, and the other. You're only saying that because you're probably thinking to go in your own strength. But if you go to them in love, if you go to them deep in prayer, trusting that the presence of heaven walks with you in that room. You sit down with those ministers and you talk to them and you plead with them, you pray with them and you biblically correct them if they're wrong. There may be some that actually will respond to the truth and respond favorably. So therefore, there is no doubt that there is a need for a reformation to take place beginning with the ministers. But brothers and sisters, we gotta understand, sometimes we ask for stuff. I remember times I was straight up a fool. I was always this bold guy. God has really tempered me. You are literally watching a far more polished Dwayne Lemon. Because I was a whip-cracking brother, and I'm serious about that. I remember one time a church invited me, uh, my church, my own church, not the one I'm at now, but one I was before, and and I was doing Bible studies. And they got mad at me, some of the elders. They got mad at me because I was doing a Bible study during the time they were doing Bible study. I said, well, listen, I said, these are young people. They're not interested in your study, and they're breaking the Sabbath. So I just wanted to go ahead and get their attention so I could at least study with them and engage their minds on the Lord's Day. Well, they said, well, no, policy and procedure says that you are not allowed to go ahead and and, and do this. Policy and procedure says that you should just go ahead and, and, and cooperate and let there be one Bible study. I said, you don't seem to believe that when it comes to Sabbath school. I said, you don't seem to believe that when it comes to the prison ministry getting up right in the middle of divine service to go out and do another ministry. I don't see you correcting them, but you're correcting me. So I said, so what's going on there? So they said, we need to have a meeting with you. So they came inside of the room. I came inside the room and they were all sitting down. It reminded me so much of the scenery of John chapter two and, and so on when Jesus was right there before that Sanhedrin. And, and I'm just looking at them and I'm just like, what do you have to say to me? And all I had was my Bible in hand. And I said, you show me from the scripture any error that I've committed. And all of a sudden, they would start talking policy and procedure. And I said, you know, you remind me of those whitewashed sepulchers that Jesus talked about. And I remember I I used to just blast them, blast them. And one time an elder came up to me. He came up to me and he says, you know, we don't appreciate what you said. I said, I'm sorry you feel that way. And then he said to me, he said, you know, you cut the legs of the elders. And that's what he did. And he walked in my face just like that. He said, you cut the legs of the elders. And he went in my face like that. And I looked him in the eyes, and my first reaction was, I said, let me tell you something. And I remember walking back in his face, and immediately he backed up. And it was immediately like the Spirit of God said, son, son, you're out of control. And I realized, brothers and sisters, I said, Father, I need your help. I got a firecracker attitude. I said, seriously serious. I said, I need your help with this thing. And it was through some praying and reading that God began to show me that in Steps to Christ, page 12, when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, it said he had tears in his voice. And God was saying, son, tears were nowhere near your voice or your eyes. You were angry. And you can never correct out of anger. All it does is it invites the presence of Satan. And I began to see that. And you know what I did? I called those elders together. And I said, I stand before you all because I'm here to let you know that I apologize. I said, I disrespected you. I said it was wrong. And I'm asking you to please forgive me. And what I realized, brothers and sisters, is that sometimes we try to correct ministers and even though our content is right, many a times our spirit is all wrong. So when we say, oh, the ministers won't listen, sometimes you really got to check yourself and ask yourself, well, what was your attitude like? What was your content like? Were you thoroughly and in the Spirit of Christ coming to these individuals to try to redirect and correct and to admonish and to encourage them to be faithful? And you'll be amazed, brothers and sisters. I've had ministers fight against present truth. I've seen ministers fight against country living. I've seen them fight against so many things. And after we begin talking and dialoguing and so on, the same ones who were the enemies of truth became advocates of truth. I've seen it. So therefore, I believe that this can happen. But we must understand it has to start when you know that there are ministers that are going around leavening God's church and God's people. Brothers and sisters, we need to love them enough to hold them accountable. That was one of the most sweetest things that Elder Ted Wilson said at that general conference in session when he spoke. He said, hold your ministers accountable. I said, yes, sir. (laughs) And you'll be amazed at what God will do. So therefore, yes, the reformation work must begin, but it must begin with the ministers. Now, if the minister refuses, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something that's powerful. When you go to them one-on-one, sometimes we get together and we have our little talks and we talk about, oh, the church is being leavened, oh, things are being torn away and all these things, and we wonder, why is it that God isn't doing anything? Let me tell you one of the reasons why. Could it be that we've tied his hands? I often ask people, okay, you have a problem with your minister. Here's my question. Have you followed the full counsel of Jesus when it comes to dealing with the ministers or dealing with anybody? And I'm talking about Matthew 18. Have you gone to them one-on-one? Nine times out of 10? No. All right. Have you gone with a witness, with the witnesses that that the Bible says to bring? Nine times out of 10? Nope, haven't done it. I'm saying, how can you expect God to act? If God were to act then God would be insubordinate to his own word. If you really want to see God act, go to them one-on-one. If they won't listen, bring the witnesses. If they won't listen, you go ahead and bring it before the church. And let me tell you something, M.L. Andreasen had that problem. If any of you know about him. M.L. Andreasen, he saw that there were brethren in the church when the book Questions on Doctrines were written and it had those problems in it. M.L. Andreasen was one of God's standard bearers. He was one of the warriors. And he stood against the error that was taking place. And you know what Andreasen did? Andreasen wanted to, he went one-on-one. He went with the witnesses. They still wouldn't listen. He wanted to bring it before the church and they blocked him. But you know what's powerful? When Andreasen went back to Matthew 18, it said, bring it before the churches but it never said during a business meeting. So you know what he did? He created that little book that you might find in some of your ABCs called Letters to the Churches. And what he did was he put together his issues and he gave it to every member. Letters to the Churches. And when the people were able to see this, this was one of the instruments that helped bring about some conviction and some fruit to go forward in the work. Are you following that? So in other words, you and I have no right to argue, beef and complain and everything else if you haven't followed God's instructions. Love your brothers and sisters enough that when you see them messing up and when you see them doing things wrong and you know that they're being an instrument of the devil at this time, don't ever forget that not once a devil always a devil because at one time Peter was a devil. But thank God, later on, Peter was the same one God used to lead out in the early rain power. There are some people that look like devils right now, but perhaps by God's grace, if we deal with them as Christ told us to deal with them, could it be that some who are being used by the devil right now might be used by God under latter rain power? Amen. So, therefore, it begins with the ministers, love them enough to hold them accountable. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Now, let's go on. Where in the Christian experience does reformation begin? Go to the book of Psalms 51. Let's notice something about David's prayer. You remember that David, he fell into sin. And when David fell into sin, certainly... He had to get things right with God. Now, what's interesting about Psalms 51 is that when you read Psalms 51 from verses 1 to 9, you find that in Psalms 51, 1 to 9, you see David praying and he's asking God to forgive him to blot out his transgressions and remove the guilt and all these things but it is in verse 10 that we find that he gets more so towards the reformatory aspect of his repentant prayer notice what the Bible says in Psalms 51 and verse 10 the Bible says create in me a clean heart O God and renew a right spirit within me When the people, the antediluvians fell into sin, the Bible says in Genesis 6, 5, it says that the imaginations of the people were evil, how often? Continually. So, there is something about the imagination that goes on up here that ultimately creates the image outside. That's why... The first thing that we should address when we're dealing with reformation, or where does it begin? It begins right here. The first work of those who would reform is to purify the imagination. That's the first step, brothers and sisters. The first work is that we must purify the imagination. If the mind is led out in a vicious direction, it must be restrained to dwell only upon pure and elevated subjects. Now, you can put Isaiah 26:3 right there. In Isaiah 26 and verse 3, the Bible says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon thee because he trusteth in thee. So therefore, if the mind is let out in a vicious direction, it must be restrained to dwell only upon pure and elevated subjects. When tempted to yield to a corrupt imagination, then flee to the throne of grace and pray for strength from heaven. In the strength of God, the imagination can be disciplined to dwell upon things which are pure and heavenly." And one of the things you can do, you see how I said pray? You see how it's calling us to pray for strength from heaven? You can follow Psalms 55, 17 on that one. Evening, morning, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud. You will find that if you pray aloud, how many times have you prayed silently and one minute you're praying and talking to the Lord and next thing you know you're thinking about grocery shopping. You're thinking about your day's duty you think about what you got to buy and what you got to sell and what you got to move on with life all of a sudden the mind begins to wander. in this same quotation right here it's just a little further down Mind, character and personality book 2 page 595 what it also says is when the mind wanders bring it back bring it back is that simple in other words if you find yourself one of the best ways that you can see yourself staying focused is that if you begin praying aloud not praying loud Praying aloud, it just simply means that it's not silent prayer, it means that your voice is actually can can be audible, you can hear it, and what will happen is it's easier to stay focused in prayer when you pray aloud. So therefore, when you pray for strength from heaven because the mind is wandering and all these other things, you can pray aloud and you can claim God's promises and you will find that the mind will come right back and the thoughts will become subject and obedient to Christ. So therefore, it begins with the imagination. Now, that means, brothers and sisters, that you should not put any images before you that will affect your imagination. Don't put any images before you that will affect your imagination. So when we talk about the first work of reformation begins with the imagination, that means that you and I are going to have to be far more judicious about what we let our minds dwell upon. You're going to have to start looking at what is it that I'm hearing? What is it that I'm seeing? What is it that I'm touching? Anything that will stimulate or put before my mind an image, these are the things that you want to begin guarding. Because you'll find that before we typically fall into sin, it first started in the Imagination. That's why Jesus is not just against the act of sin, but he's also against the things that lead to the act. That's why he said, it is not enough that you commit adultery, but when you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery. What's going on in the imagination? So therefore, the first step is that we must be mindful of what am I putting in front of me? that consistently allows my mind to dwell on things that are impure and unholy. Whatever those things are, those are the things that you're going to need to cut off. Are you following? Some of you don't need some of these PDA phones because the stuff you keep accessing over the internet is not helping you. It's not drawing you close to Jesus. It's drawing you closer to the things of Satan because it's putting the wicked imaginations because of what we're looking at. Some of us don't need all this high-speed internet access. It's one of the things that's killing a lot of people right now. There's no sin in high-speed internet access. There's no sin in PDA phones. There's no sin in Facebook unless it keeps your face out of the book of life. (laughs) Nothing wrong with any of these things, but when we find that it begins to become a distracting force or an introduction to wicked imaginations, that's when God says you need to let those things go. This is the go sin no more. Are you following? All right, well, let's go on. What is directly connected to imagination reform? In other words, yes, it is true that God wants me to be mindful of what I imagine or what I allow to go on in my mind, but did you know that inspiration actually shows us a very powerful way to do this? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me show you something. In 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, I'm going to give you the brief explanation on this so that I can move on from it. From verses 1 to 10 in 1 Corinthians 10, you find that it rehearses several experiences of the children of Israel as they left Egypt on their way to Canaan land. Now, after all these experiences, from verses 5 to 10, they were very, very negative. Talks about them fornicating and complaining and all these things and how they suffered the horrible ramifications. Notice what the Bible says now in verse 11. 1 Corinthians ten eleven. It says now how much of these things? It says, now all these things happen unto them for what? And samples, And they are written for our admonition upon what? Whom the ends of the world are come. So the Bible makes it clear that the things that happened to the children of Israel were in samples for those who are living in the time of the end of the world. The and word and samples means Types. So when we look at the children of Israel, as they they left Egypt on their way to Canaan land, it was types or typical of what God's people in the last days were going to go through as we're preparing to go to the heavenly Canaan. Now, when we look at that, you will find that the first reformation that God did with the children of Israel was based on what? It's too quiet, so you don't know. Exodus 16. Let's go to Exodus 16. I don't want you to guess. If you don't know, then you don't know. That's all right. You'll know. In Exodus 16, let's see what the Bible shows. The first reformation that God did with the children of Israel, I find to be very interesting. Notice what the Bible says. Exodus 16, we're going to start right here at verse 1 and we'll take it to verse 4. The Bible says, And they took their journey from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came unto the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departing out of the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Well, what was their problem? Why were they murmuring? Verse 3, And the children of Israel said unto them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the what? When we sat by the flesh pots, and when we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will do what? I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. You'll notice that the Bible shows that the first reformation that God did with the children of Israel was he changed their diet. Soon as they got out of Egypt, the first reformation that God did is he changed their diet. Now, Why would God esteem diet on such a high level? For what reason? Well, it's very interesting. You see, there was a flashback from Egypt. Go to Exodus chapter 5. In Exodus chapter 5, notice what the Bible says as it relates to something that was said in Egypt at one time. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 5, you remember the story, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and they tell Pharaoh, let my people go pharaoh responded in a very interesting way that the bible shows us in verse two in exodus chapter five and verse two the bible says and pharaoh said who is the lord that i should obey his voice to let israel go i know not the lord neither will i let israel go so here it is that they're telling pharaoh let my people go pharaoh responds who is the lord that i should obey him i'm not going to obey him now what was the reason that pharaoh would say who is the lord Why would he even question God's sovereignty like that? Well, one of the things you'll find in the Bible is there was at least one reason why. I'm sure there were many others, but there was one reason why. And we find this reason in Proverbs, the 30th chapter. Go to Proverbs chapter 30. This should be review for many of us. In Proverbs, the 30th chapter, you'll notice what the Bible says as we consider verses 7 to 9. Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Notice what is one reason why somebody would question God and say, who is the Lord that I should even obey him? The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7, two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food, how? (laughs) Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full. And what? Deny thee and say what? Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. The Bible shows a direct connection between overeating and denying God. Is that biblical? (laughs) There is a connection between overeating. He said, feed me with food, what? Convenient Convenient for me, lest I be full. And then what was the end result of being full? I would deny you and say, who is the Lord? You see, a lot of people do not believe that their eating and drinking habits. Now, are we family? Are we? Fa- you sure? Because you know some of you know I don't look like you, but we're still family. Is that right? Yes, you do. You know we're family. Yes, you do. Now watch this. Watch this. We are family because the blood of Christ is thicker than any other biological blood that humanity has. I look at you as my brothers and sisters. You think I'm calling you brothers and sisters for fun? No. You are my brothers and my sisters. All right. Now watch this. You know one thing about family. is family can talk. Is that right? Family can talk. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm asking you to be honest with me as family. How many of you honestly believe that your eating and drinking habits do not affect your salvation? Let me ask that question again before you raise your hands. How many of you honestly believe that your eating and drinking habits do not affect your salvation? We're family. How many of us would be honest and say, yeah, I don't believe that. I don't believe. Thank you. I appreciate that. Is there anybody else? I appreciate that. Appreciate that. Anybody else? Anybody? Okay. Another hand there. All right. Anybody else? All right. Good. Anyone else? All right. Another hand. We're kind of doing that. Don't worry. It's fa- we're family. It's all right. We're family. Thank you. We're fa- hey, we're We're family i don't mind you making a mistake in here what i don't want you to do is make a mistake out there when you're working with a soul Amen. how many of you honestly believe that your eating and drinking habits affects your salvation how many of you by the raise of hands believe that okay it's a pretty larger number all right how many of you have no idea raise your hand i don't know okay Do you believe that iniquity affects your salvation? How many of you, do we say yes to that? All right, that should be everybody in the room, right? Okay. Now, we know that iniquity affects your salvation because in Isaiah 59 and verse two, the Bible says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. So iniquity is the reason we're separated from God. All right? Okay. So we are in agreement that iniquity affects our salvation. Yes? All right. Let's go to Ezekiel 16. We're going to read Ezekiel 16. We're going to read it slow. Now, in Ezekiel 16, we're going to notice what the Bible says. I especially want my friends who have raised their hands to say, hey, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't believe my eating and drinking habits affects my salvation. So we want to talk about it from the Word of God. Now, look, in Ezekiel 16 and verse 49, let's notice what the Bible says. We're going to read it slow. In Ezekiel 16 and verse 49, Behold, this was the what? Iniquity of who? Thy sister. thy sister Sodom. Stop right there. Now, thus far, we just read in the beginning of the sentence, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. So whatever comes after the sentence, we know is what was called what? Iniquity. What's the first thing on the list? Pride. So do you believe that pride is iniquity? Yes. 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 Will pride separate us from God? Yes. So does pride affect your salvation? Yes. What's the next thing on the list? Fullness of bread. Fullness of bread. Wait a minute. What's that? What's that? That's overeating. That's overeating. What does the Bible call overeating? In, no, no, no. I am no, the verse. What does the verse call overeating? Iniquity. Iniquity affects what? Your salvation. So therefore, I ask you the question again. Does your eating and drinking habits... Can it affect your salvation? Yes. 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 Now, the whole reason why is because, you know, th- th- I have some quotations, but it's not on this slideshow show that we have. But I have some quotations where it shows you, but I'm in Loma Linda. You guys know this, I would imagine. There are all sorts of studies that show that that chemical called dopamine... You study that, right? Dopamine. Doctors, anyone in here? And when you study about dopamine, you know that dopamine is used for cognitive functions, and we know that dopamine helps as it relates to uh, ability to make decisions, ability to see things and understand things clearly. I mean, dopamine is very important. Well, what happens is when a person overeats, it causes dopamine disorders. The person is not able to make right cognitive decisions. And as a result of that, if a person overeats, that's why it's very natural for them, as Ellen White says, to surrender the will to the baser passions, the animalistic passions, the lower propensities, what the flesh wants. And this is the reason why God does not want us to overeat, because it hinders the mind from being clear so that when heaven wants to speak, we can understand it, live it, and practice it, and effectively share it with others. You get that? So therefore, there's no thing about, oh, I'm making excuses about my overeating habits. Brothers and sisters, now we understand that it's a bigger issue than just simply having a big belly. It's a serious issue. Now, understanding this, when it says what is directly connected to imagination reformation, then let's notice. We are told, in order to make the temperance movement a success, the work of reform must begin at our tables. You see, now we understand it, don't we? Temperance 196. Now we understand that the work of reform must begin at the dinner table, brothers and sisters. If you and I don't get victory over appetite, there will be no victory over sin. You understand that? If you and I don't get victory over appetite, there will be no victory over sin. You have to take more seriously these binges that we have. Jesus wants to give us power that we can overcome the calls even of the flesh. And therefore, the work of reform begins at the table. Don't you love this? I mean, God loves us so much that he's literally walking us step by step On how to experience true reformation God says yes it's gonna start with the imagination but one of the things that directly affects the imagination is how we eat how we eat that directly affects the imagination someone asked the question they say well why does reform practically we begin with food it's very simple because brothers and sisters erroneous eating and drinking results in erroneous thinking and acting you get that we just went through those scriptures. Erroneous eating and drinking results in erroneous thinking and acting. This is why we have to understand the connection between diet, the mind, and the body. By the way, what is the great issue? What's the great final crisis all about? The, the, the great issue between the commandments of God and, 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 and the mark of the beast and all those things. Is it all based on the law of God? Is the final crisis based on the law of God? Yes, it is, right? Well, how do you serve the law of God? Well, go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Notice what the Bible says. In Romans, the 7th chapter, you will find that the Bible tells us exactly how we serve the law of God. The Bible says in Romans, the 7th chapter, first sentence of verse 25. First two sentences, rather. It's two points. The Bible says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 25, how do you serve the law of God? The great crisis is over the issue of the law of God. Notice this. It says in Romans 7 and verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God. What do you serve the law of God with? Your mind. Brothers and sisters, that's why God changed their diet. When God changed Israel's diet as they left Egypt on their way to Canaan land, God was preparing their minds for what they were about to receive at Mount Sinai. You read that in Councils on Diets and Foods 374. Now, now it makes more sense when in Daniel chapter 1, one of the first things that Satan wants to do is he says, feed them the king's meat. If God gave them healthy food to prepare their minds to receive the truth on Mount Sinai, then certainly Satan wants to give them unhealthy food so that their minds will be debilitated so that they will not faithfully follow God. I appreciate Elder Randy Skeet when he brought out a most profound point. You'll remember that there were three things that Babylon wanted to change with God's people. You, and they're all in Daniel chapter 1. Babylon wanted to change their curriculum, their education, teach them the learning of the Chaldeans. But Daniel didn't protest. You read nothing in, anywhere in the Bible where Daniel protested against false education. Why? Because he was already rooted in true education. But then they also wanted to change Daniel's name. Daniel didn't protest. You read from Daniel 1 to Daniel 12, no protest. Why? Because Daniel says, look, I know my name. That's why every time Daniel gets to speak, he says, I, Daniel. I, Daniel, me, Daniel. He never said, I, Belteshazzar. He didn't, not once. They called him Belteshazzar. But when Daniel get a chance, he said, I, Daniel, that's my name. He understood his name. So no protest, but when they changed Daniel's diet, that's the first time Daniel protested. Daniel said, we will not eat the king's meat. Why did Daniel protest that? Because Daniel understood erroneous eating and drinking results in erroneous thinking and acting. And when you are subject to the powers of Babylon, you need to think and act real clear and straight. But notice it doesn't stop here because erroneous eating and drinking result in erroneous thinking and acting. But then you have to understand that thus actions repeated form habits and habits character. And by the character, our destiny for time and eternity is decided. Remember we talked about that? That's the quote. I told you Christ Object Lessons 356. So to understand that erroneous eating and drinking results in erroneous thinking and acting, actions repeated form habits, habits form character, and by the character, our destiny for time and eternity is decided. This is why reformation must begin at the table. It prepares us for all the other reformations that need to take place. This is why we're told that if we eat all these different bad foods and so on and so forth, we shouldn't be leaders and and, and so on. This is where all that comes from, because God understands the effect of erroneous eating and drinking. And don't tell me about your culture, because God gives counsels on spices. Some brethren, you know, I, I've been invited to just about, I feel like I've been invited to every culture of churches under the sun now. And some cultures, you'll find they, they love spicy food. They say it's part of our culture to eat this. Brothers and sisters, I have some news for you. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And because he's a new creature, that means he's entered a new culture. It's a superior culture to any other culture. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. So if you find that your old culture clashes with your new culture, the new culture is superior. Amen. And if the new culture says eating and drinking to the glory of God includes not putting things that will stimulate your blood and fever your blood and cloud your mind, then that means that it's got to go. You follow that? So don't use culture as a reason to practice things that are harming the body temple. Are you following? So therefore, erroneous eating and drinking results in erroneous thinking and acting. I know a mother, she has a child that's running all over the place and and the child just cannot sit down and then lo and behold, we find out the child is suffering with ADHD. And then here it is that we're looking at all the ADHD and and the mother's just like, you know, I'm literally consulting with this person and the person's talking about, oh, I have all these problems, my child just can't sit down and so on. But the next thing you know, the mother was feeding them cotton candy. (laughs) Feeding them cotton candy and candy apples. And I said, you know, I said, have you ever looked up red number 40 and blue number 50 and all these different, I said, those are all called food additives. I said, do you know that food additives is one of the chief causes of ADHD from the food kingdom? So the mother was like, wow, I didn't know that. I said, that's why we're going to need to make some changes. She started to make certain changes. Child started to improve. So what we have to do is always be in the mindset of ascertaining the cause, brothers and sisters. There is literally certain things we are putting inside of our system that is one of the reasons why we cannot memorize Scripture, why we cannot retain information, why we always find ourselves struggling to apply Bible truth, giving in to the lower propensities, the baser passions. Sometimes it's what we're putting right inside of our mouth. This is why God wants us to understand erroneous eating and drinking results in erroneous thinking and acting and actions repeated form habits and habits form character. And by the character, our destiny for time and eternity is decided. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we're going to take a break. And we're going to talk a little bit about God's food manual. We're going to take ourselves a 10 minute break. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk about God's food manual. There are going to be some wondrous things out of the word of God that he will show us. So let us take a break, 10 minutes. We will come back as we prepare our hearts to study God's food manual.